The Koi Gig Pod. I'm laughing because I was listening to a conversation that the City Girls were having and they were just going on about this throw-in. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's our weapon in the World Cup. Subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. Football on Off The Ball. With Sky. Watch Newcastle versus Chelsea on Saturday Night Football. Live only on Sky Sports. This is News Talk. So we're just 10 days away from the start of the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. Very timely then for the release of a new documentary on Netflix, a four-part series, FIFA Uncovered, uh, which looks back on FIFA and the many, many controversies that have surrounded the organisation going back over the last 30, 40 years. I'm delighted to be joined by the producer of FIFA Uncovered, Miles Coleman. Good evening, Miles. Good evening, how's it going? Very well, congratulations. Uh, Brave man, going up against The Crown on Netflix yesterday. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm hoping that the Venn diagram between people who want to know about corruption in football and The Crown, uh, actually saying that, it might be bigger than I imagined. Uh, Long-standing ruler, clinging to power. Uh, There's plenty of similarities, I think, between the two of these. Uh, A man who has spent far too much time, I suspect, with Sepp Blatter over the last few years. No, not at all. Well, I suppose thematically, yes, we've spent a lot of time learning about the life and times and career of Sepp Blatter in terms of time spent with the man himself in person a couple of hours, which is pretty eye opening, as you can imagine. Uh, You got a lot out of those couple of hours. Uh, Blatter, because of this documentary, has come back into the fore and is maybe trying to rewrite history a little bit from his point of view. Was he difficult to to pin down? Was he somebody who was very happy to discuss his 30, 40 years at FIFA? I mean, he was difficult to pin down in the sense that it was a global pandemic when we were filming and he's a, he's getting on in years. He was actually very ill around the time that we wanted to film with him. I mean, um, it, you know, it was all in the news that he was hospitalized with COVID and complications. So from that perspective, it was difficult. In terms of, um, you know, him wanting to do the interview, it was actually a pretty immediate yes. Um, you have to remember that Seth Blatter is a man who made his career, who worked his way up from you know pretty much nowhere to one of the most powerful people in the world using just the gift of the gap. So he's a guy very confident in front of a camera, any camera. He likes being in front of a camera. And I think he looked at us as just, um, you know, he says yes to speaking to people. That's how he made his way in the world. So this was no different. Can you go back to the start then and Sepp Blatter's first involvements with FIFA, which is is really covered in the first episode of this series. How did he first come to the attention of Zhao Havelange and what did he see Sepp Blatter's role as being? Yeah, this is one of the amazing things. As a football fan, I couldn't really remember a time pre-Blatter that he was always one of these people who was just spoken about. And and actually his involvement with FIFA goes all the way back to, to the 1970s. And... Joao Havelange had just won the election, somewhat surprisingly upsetting the apple cart and was the president of FIFA. And he inherited an organization that was basically a handful of people, um, not really making any money, not not a kind of powerhouse in any way, shape or form. And Havelange's idea, Havelange's promise in many ways was he was going to be the one who was going to commercialize football, was going to bring money into the game. In order to do that, they needed, quote unquote, a marketing man, someone who could find commercial opportunities for for football and Havelange was actually recommended Blatter by Horst Dazzler who was the son of the heir he was the heir to Adidas uh, son of the president and would later become the president of Adidas and Horst Dazzler was you know has been described by multiple people as a, as someone who's quite visionary 
who also saw kind of like Avalanche did the untapped potential for football. And Dazzler figured, well, I've got this guy who works alongside me at Adidas. Um, I want to get better mates with Havalange. Why don't I recommend this guy, Blatter? And he can almost sort of be my guy inside FIFA. So Blatter says in the interview, he joined as employee number 12 with the brief to find the money. And well, you can't say that he didn't do that. Blatter found the money and Dazzler and Adidas for their part cemented a relationship with FIFA that goes well into today. I'd encourage listeners here to have a look how much Adidas they see in the 2022 World Cup, for example. Well, it's incredible, really, the success that he had because Sepp Blatter was also the one who brought in Coca-Cola. And if you go on the FIFA website right now for the World Cup and their commercial partners, the first two names at the top of the list are Adidas and Coca-Cola 50 years on. Absolutely. And it is so amazing to think, you know, how much that has changed because when Sepp Blatter came in, that was not the norm. It wasn't the norm to have sponsors. In fact, it was completely rare. When we think about football today, the default is hyper-monetized, hyper-marketing, you know, brands everywhere. It wasn't the case. This is something that FIFA and Blatter and Havalange really kind of pioneered. And then it spread into other sports. And, you know, we, we are where we are today, where my club has an official noodle partner, for example. None of that happens without Blatter, really. We had Miguel Delaney on the show over the last couple of days talking about Qatar and you know, referencing 1936 and the Hitler Olympics. And this is discussed as well in the first episode around Argentina and 1978 and the controversy around that. That would have been the first World Cup that Blatter would have been in and around more or less and uh, the awarding and the bidding process and all of that. What what was his attitude towards that World Cup and the arguments at the time that it should never have been staged in Argentina, that there should have been boycotts? Was he a political figure at that early stage? You know, what's interesting about that is is FIFA's position, or really Havalange's position was, we do not do politics. We do not do politics, we're apolitical. Blatter at this stage is not somewhat bladder at this stage was very much positioning himself as the loyal assistant the number two the worker be the guy who um would do whatever Havalanche needed to get done so he was going to back his boss's position his boss's position was sport and politics do not mix and of course that's something that we hear just this week fifa are putting out a mm. message saying sport and politics do not mix that's a party line that i think in many ten, many cases sounds nicer than it is we all like the idea that sports is just a fairyland untouched by the grim, you know, the grim realities of politics or sometimes the grubbiness of politics. That's something, that's a line that Blatter probably heard for the first time around that and really ran with it during his career. And in many ways, it stuck around. Uh, Zhao Havalange, I assume, much like Gianni Infantino, didn't really believe sport and politics didn't mix. You know, one of the things that we investigated during this is, is, what really was Havelander's political persuasion? Because he said so many times that sport and politics don't mix, but he was a guy who was very comfortable with right-wing regimes. He was a guy who was the son of an arms dealer who made his money under the dictatorship in Brazil. I don't think it's, I think it's quite disingenuous for him to say he was apolitical because he definitely had an affinity towards um, regimes where basically FIFA could roll in and, and act how they wanted. And I mean, Gianni Infantino, to answer the second part of your question, says this week that sports and politics don't mix, but in March bans Russia from um, competing in the World Cup, you know, notionally for political reasons. Um, 
it does seem that actually across the history of FIFA, sport and politics not mixing is a line that gets trotted out when sport and politics mixing is uncomfortable, when there is no easy answer. And, and actually, it's better to bury your head in the stand with a platitude. Um, so, yes. <laughs> Did you get a sense from Blatter as to when his mindset changed from being the marketing guy who knew how to bring in the money to actually wanting a greater role within FIFA, to wanting it all? Yeah, I, the sense that we got speaking with him, speaking with people that knew him, speaking with people who worked around that time, is basically his second day on the job. The Blatter was extremely ambitious, that he went into FIFA knowing that he wanted to have the top job. There's an amazing incident around um, sort of 1994 where basically Blatter made a, a bit of a run at Avalanche and was kind of beaten off and didn't really get enough of support. And he, he kind of, it looked for a while like, he, like he'd blown it, but Blasser was always had his eyes on the top job. And I think he kind of used his image as a, as a functionary, as someone who was kind of rather unglamorous. He used that to his advantage to say, you know, I'm not a threat, but he always had his eyes on the top job. And he always saw that the FIFA presidency was a role that's kind of unrivaled in in any kind of government anywhere in the world. It did strike me, though, thinking from an Irish point of view of somebody like Pat Hickey and his rise to power in the Olympic movement and his ability to maybe ignore, in a way, the bigger nations and look to CONCACAF and look to Africa and look to the sheer numbers and votes that were held there. Parts of the world that were often ignored that he gave them a voice and power and respect and that was a huge part of him being able to build a power base absolutely and it's a flaw in the fifa system that no one's really figured out and i you know i'm not going to sit here and say i've got a solution or that montserrat or saltome and principe shouldn't have a voice but i think it's an it's an interesting thing that Havalanche certainly cottoned onto quite early that there was this inbuilt um, ability to to whip votes into into shape, and then that put him in power. Blatter certainly learned from that, and then I, I I do think that that sort of made him in many ways untouchable. What we need to remember is when Black when the arrest happened in 2015, when the FBI are arresting FIFA executive committee members, the FIFA Congress voted for Blatter again. Essentially, enough people in that room um, thought Blatter's still doing a good job for me, doing a good job for us. If I look at the comments on Twitter today, and I'll, I'll admit I've done probably more than that than I should have done. Um, when I'm scrolling through Twitter, you see plenty of people saying, yeah, but he was good for my country. We felt we had a voice. And I think if you want to look at Echoes today, you know, this is the last World Cup with 32 teams. The next World Cup will have 48. And is that really because, you know, we want to spread the, the, the World Cup to everyone? Or is there an ulterior motive here? Because that's what the smaller nations want to hear is you've got a voice you'll be listened to under this presidency and you've got more access. So would you have found many people during your research and your interviews that would look at Sepp Blatter as a force for good in football? Dozens, dozens and dozens. Um, I think what, you know, it's it's quite hard to, to imagine that, I think from the kind of European perspective, because Blatter was always, at least in our minds, kind of the boogeyman, everything that was wrong was football. But uh, to take one example, I was born in South Africa and still support the South African national team. When Bafana Bafana play, I try watch. And, and when 
you know, as far as people are concerned in South Africa, there are a great many people who look at Blatter and go, he brought the World Cup to my doorstep. Without Blatter, we're not having a World Cup. And he remains incredibly popular. And I think there are some people who, there's a little bit of hindsightness, but that there are some people who felt that Blatter's FIFA, well, they did very well under it. Um, that they were earning pretty well and the good times rolled and it was a bit more of a party. You know, if you look at the videos of FIFA Congresses, they were pretty lavish. I mean, they look really fun. And I think there was this idea that, that yeah, Blatter basically let them get away with a lot more than what's happening today. How different is the process or was the process of awarding World Cups from the start of the Bladder era to the end? So, you know, there is a, a first world arrogance of saying, well, it's fine to have a World Cup in USA and France and South Korea and Japan and Germany. But as you say, then he brings it to South Africa. Uh, then, you know, we end up going to Russia, to Qatar. The 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 risk of corruption, did that change through the years? Yes, and I'm going to use the word allegedly a lot in this answer because basically a lot of this has not been, you know, a lot of this has been has been rumoured and and so much of the sort of bribery around World Cup bids is spoken in hotel rooms, you know, it's not people aren't putting out emails which get leaked. I think absolutely the what what's changed is is a couple of things when it comes to how to influence the executive committee. So the executive committee at 24 men who vote on the world cup they were all men at that point and actually when they voted for russia and qatar two were struck off for corruption so you're down to 22. and i think back in the day there was much more of a sense that you know well first that we should put our best bid forward and and they'll make up their minds and then when the issues around payment started seeping in there was a gradual realization from about 1998 onwards that actually the best way to get these guys to vote for your bid was not necessarily to focus on selling your bid, but it, it, it was simply just make it what was in it for them. And I think it's pretty hard to argue against the fact that Blatter knew a lot of this was happening, but was okay to permit it as long as the executive committee stayed on his side and kept voting him in and, and passing his measures. I think in many ways, what will surprise some people to find out is Blatter didn't want the World Cup to go to Qatar. Qatar was very much the moment where Blatter lost control of his executive committee when they did something that made him and his organization look shoddy against his wishes. And it's, you know, that was the moment when he realized that he'd sort of created a monster he could no longer tame. But also to answer your question a bit more, I think one of the things that's, that's changed fundamentally in how World Cups were awarded under Blatter is governments were getting involved. It wasn't any longer a bid would try influence an executive committee member one-to-one. -one. You have astonishing incidents like the lunch between Platini, Sarkozy, and the Emir of Qatar, where basically fighter jets and the sale of PSG are discussed in the same sentence as Platini bringing his vote to Qatar for the World Cup. I mean, that's a level beyond. I think some people can forgive, or maybe not forgive, but some people can at least understand, oh, I'll pay you for your vote. They don't like it, but they can understand. It's really hard to wrap your head around fighter jets getting thrown into the mix. And that happened under Blatter's watch. 
uh, Nick Harris every so often on his um, social media account from uh, Sporting Intelligence and who works for the Daily Mail often puts up the list of people who voted for the World Cups and it's a, a very long and interesting list of characters most of whom are uh, no longer around FIFA or around in different ways and who've had uh, plenty of issues uh, Jack Warner and Chuck Blazer come up um, on several occasions during this uh, there's two interesting characters yeah, two great, two two fascinating individuals, and I think um, both very savvy, both sort of in, indicative um, examples of what being a FIFA member was like at that point. You had to I, know how to have a good time. Absolutely, those guys had a great time. You know, Chuck Blazer. We've seen some of his Amex statements, and yeah, the man was living. And and you know, there are all these kind of salacious details that we mentioned about him in the past. You know stories of him riding around Central Park on his mobility scooter, a parrot on his shoulder. You got the sense, and I got the sense from speaking with people who knew, especially Chuck, that he almost knew that it couldn't last. It was just like being in a sort of simulation in this fairyland that one day would come crashing down. Jack Warner lives freely on the island of Trinidad. He's fighting extradition, but you know I don't think anyone expects him to be extradited to the US anytime soon. He's an incredibly, incredibly wealthy man. No one knows quite how wealthy he is. And I think has, you know, largely gotten away with how he's pilfered from football, um, which is a shame, but it sort of, it kind of shows you just how slippery some of these characters are. You touched on the awarding of the World Cup to Qatar and, you know, that meeting there uh, between Sarkozy and like it becomes this big geopolitical situation almost where we're talking deals of hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars between different countries for just one vote or for the influence of various people. Like they beat off South Korea, Japan, Australia, the USA. Were Qatar just better at this? Like, I often remember England looking and going, well, you know, we threw David Beckham at it, but we just didn't go far enough. Was was this a case where everybody knew the terms and conditions of trying to host a World Cup, of putting a bid in place? I'll give you, you know, there are some examples that have come to our attention during the making of this that show that basically everyone was operating with one foot inside the pitch and one foot outside of it to use a pretty... Um, tired football metaphor. The Paraguayan um, head of Comnebol and executive committee member Nicolas Leoz is reported to have asked the England bid team to consider him for a knighthood in exchange for his vote. And and also that they would name a road leading up to Wembley, Nicolas Leoz Way that they might... And, and the England bid team um, allegedly considered this. It's, you know, they didn't dismiss it out of hand, but they sort of um, you know, basically didn't go for it in the end. But I think the point, and, th- and there are similar stories, you know, uh, handbags being, you know, given as gifts to Jack Warner's wife, amongst others. I think there was a sense that um, everyone knows the rules of engagement. Everybody knows that the executive committee members, um, what they're like, who needs to be appeased with what, and so on. I mean, there were, you know, everyone had sort of dossiers on on all of these guys and, and what their motivations were. And I think to some extent, people knew that the Qatari bid in particular was just operating on a different level, but they didn't get a sense of how much that was until after the bid and all these things come out. You know, uh, the purchase of PSG, I don't think anyone could have seen that coming, for example. Is Blatter bitter about the awarding of the World Cup to Qatar? Yes, I think it's fair to say he is bitter. I think he perceives, perhaps even correctly, 
that Russia was something that he could have gotten away with. In fact, he, you know, there were many people saw Russia as a kind of perfectly legitimate candidate for that. Um, I have every reason to believe that Blatter voted for it. But as far as he sees it, Qatar being awarded the World Cup was the fatal flaw. And I think there are a few people in his administration who come forward and said that in the doc, that basically the Qatar-Russia one-two punch with the second punch of Qatar was just too much for them to to overcome, that it, it, it added a level of scrutiny that no one was really ready for. And I think, um, yeah, I think he possibly even thinks he could still be in, in charge or could have been in charge up until recently. Remember, again, the US go to make all these arrests in 2015 in Zurich, and he stands for election a couple of days later and wins. So this is a he he thought he was basically above all of this. And I think he sees when he says it's a mistake, I think that's a, a polite way of saying it was a mistake for me because mm. I lost my job. So his issue wasn't that the FIFA technical report had described it as a high risk and was extremely negative. His issue was that he wasn't the one pulling the strings anymore. One of the most heartbreaking interviews in all of this, and it's a very small detail, was with the the man who wrote the bid book, uh, a Chilean by the name of Harold Maiden Nichols. And he describes how no one called him, spoke to him about the bid book. He describes how basically it was it was irrelevant. It wasn't worth the paper it was written on. The executive committee members weren't weren't reading it. And I think for you know that shows for everyone, including for Blatter, that the twenty one other executive committee members were just not taking anything into account other than what worked best for them. That this was a purely political decision. That this was that you know that many of them were just trying to get a good deal for themselves out of it. And all of the fallout that's happened, you know, whether you from Blatter losing his job to the deaths of thousands of migrant laborers and building infrastructure that's needed for the World Cup basically comes out of those that that group of 22's decision. And does he feel any guilt over that? Yeah, spoiler alert, he <laughs> doesn't. Um it's sort of it's it's the closing line of the documentary is he says no, these these people were. Um, I, I cannot be held responsible for the actions of these people, and um, I'll bite my tongue and say I, I ask viewers to make up their minds for themselves whether that's a fair position to take or not. That last episode, too close to the sun, you know, there's a lot on 2015 and the FBI and even the very start of the series has CNN reports of the investigations into FIFA. Uh, what was your takeaway from his attitude towards what happened in 2015? Was was that complete bold from the blue, a shock to the system because he had uh, flown so close to the sun for so long and got away with it and done whatever he wanted that actually suddenly he was accountable? What's amazing is that Seth Blatter has, well, sorry, let me rephrase that. It is a fact that Seth Blatter has never been found guilty of a crime. And as far as he is concerned, that's absolutely accurate. So he would look at, you know, his suspension from FIFA. He would look at the arrests that happened in 2015 as, as things that don't reflect at all on his innocence or guilt, because as far as he's concerned, and as far as the court of law is concerned, he is innocent. He has never been found guilty of any crime. I might just play a clip from uh, from episode four, uh, the journalist David Kahn uh, talking about FIFA and the responsibility that they hold for the sport. It's the job of the people who run it 
to make sure that they steer it in a direction that embodies good values that's worthy of all that passion. Because it's, it's really clear that football can be abused um, and exploited and the passions of uh, people who love the game can be exploited for malevolent purpose. Dictators have used sport for propaganda, basically. And that's happened incredibly recently in 2018 in Russia. The world will witness a welcoming Russia, a warm Russia, a Russia which is open to the world. We don't have to look back to Argentina in 78 or Berlin in 1936. It's happening and we've got to be very, very alive to that. Big sport does need to be extremely honest about the power that it holds. There's a quote, Miles, from a former FIFA media director. He says, if you ask if FIFA can ever get away from corruption, you have to ask if the world can ever get away from corruption. And that clip from David Kahn sums up the rather depressing reality that going back 40, 50 years when uh, bribery was to the fore and it was watches and holidays and everybody having a good time, was a hell of a lot better than right now where FIFA has been more or less co-opted by dictatorships and has been used in a far greater way to influence the world. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think one of the things that, that we, um, one, of the, one of the realizations we had is that the future of sport um, is now being displayed out at a level that goes far beyond um, people skimming off money for marketing contracts, putting it into trust funds. The current FIFA are very quick to point out that they've instituted all sorts of reforms, that they're working on better governance, that the US Department of Justice has you know, basically said to the current FIFA, oh, you guys were victims of the, of the previous regime and, and here's a $200 million sort of settlement that, that, that that's money that was you know, unfairly diverted from you. And, and the current FIFA would say, well, that shows that we are uh, managing our organization better. But I think many of us remain concerned that football um, in FIFA and external to FIFA is increasingly a plaything for the for the wealthy. It's increasingly a laundromat for reputations. I look at the purchase of Newcastle United with you know a, a little bit of sadness, quite a lot of sadness, because I think that that was welcomed um, by so many people because they're going to, you know, by great players, and I just don't think having Sven Botman, as good as he is at centre back, is worth selling out um, the soul of a club that's that's a phenomenal football club with an amazing support. And when we look at, for example, the proposals around a biannual World Cup, you know, we looked at it as football fans and went, "Oh, that's not really that doesn't feel right to me in in terms of the cadence of tournaments." And I think very few people looked at the fact that it was the Saudi Arabian FA who was making that proposal that, you know, to my reading, the Saudi FA looked at the current World Cup in Qatar and said, we want a piece of that. This seems great. We need to hurry it up so it can come round to us sooner. Um, and I suppose our, our hope as filmmakers is that when we, you know, one day when we make the Gianni Infantino story, that the conclusion of that is football was put back on the right track and not um, that he kind of, you know, his organisation delivered football and delivered our passions into the hands of dictators for their purposes. 
you don't sound very hopeful of that. I mean, you know, forgive me, we spent three years looking at um, and meeting some of these people. And as a football fan, I was surprised often how how poisoned the well was. I think Gianni Infantino has a really hard job to do. And you need to remember that Gianni Infantino has inherited the World Cups in Russia and Qatar. Admittedly, he kept them there, but um, the USA and Mexico and Canada, that's the first World Cup that he and his organization were able to oversee. There was a bid process with very little controversy in terms of um, you know whether that bid was awarded with corruption at its heart. I don't think anyone, um, you know, the, no one's come forward to say that there was. Um, but that being said, I, I do worry for the for the for the future of football more broadly. And I don't think anyone is really, you know, when FIFA put out statements saying this week, saying keep football and politics together, that ideology has no place in football. I just think that we can do better. Uh, Miles, I think it's fair to say this is a must-watch for everybody on Netflix over the next 10 days. I had hoped it was like one of those albums from the 90s, you know, when the last song would finish and if you left it for two minutes, there was a bonus song at the end and we would get a nice little 10-minute on Sepp Blatter offering John Delaney five million for the FAI so that Ireland would give up on Team 33. Didn't come up? You know what? Um, Sadly, John Delaney didn't make it into this series, but I think we can have a series too, which is just the John Delaney story and have plenty of viewers be very entertained. So let's let's talk about that one after, shall we? All right. Uh, Miles Coleman, producer of FIFA Uncovered, which is available on Netflix right now. Congratulations on a brilliant piece of work and thanks a lot for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Football on Off The Ball With Sky Don't miss Wolves versus Arsenal On Saturday Night Football Live only on Sky Sports This is News Talk